I believe we're ready to go. All right. What is it? Pinch Punch, last day of the month? Yes. End of June. Now recording. 2020. I'm, I'm losing track of time, people. You're going to have to help me here. But uh, yeah, good evening. Friday night call-in show. Thanks for everyone who dropped by um, Wednesday for a uh, surprise call-in show. It was really pleasant to chat with everyone. And um, let's get uh, cooking with uh, guests tonight. All right. So up first, I'm going to bring in uh, someone who hasn't asked a question before. He asks, there are a few people in my wife's circle of friends that have been trying to sabotage my marriage because they can't stand that my wife is living the life they always wanted. I tried talking to my wife about how toxic these people are, but when she tried to confront them about some of the statements they've made, they accused me of trying to separate my wife from them more than I already have as she moved out of state to be with me and tried to spin it that I am the toxic one. How do I talk talk with my wife about cutting these people out of her life when they've been such huge parts of her life leading up to meeting me? Wow. Quite a... Quite a story, quite a challenge. Uh, hi, do, do you want to flesh out some more details, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, so I married my wife a couple years ago. And ever since we got engaged, honestly, there's been immense toxicity from her extended family and some of her best friends that... It seems that ever since I came into her life, her life has gotten exponentially better and theirs has just gone downhill from my perspective. Uh, my wife is my wife is disabled and she seemed to be the, the token disabled person that they'd flaunt around of, oh, see, I'm such a good person. I'm hanging out with a disabled girl. Look at me. I'm wonderful. They were always the popular ones. She was always the outcast. And now we got married. Their relationships all went to crap. And she's literally living the life that they were envisioning for themselves before their relationships fell apart for various reasons what is your wife disabled in 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 what manner i'm sorry there was a it broke up i didn't hear what you said in what in what manner is your wife disabled uh she she was born with cerebral palsy For some reason, you are cutting out for me as well. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, Hold on. Just make sure you don't have anything else running that might be taking up bandwidth on your computer. I'm not sure if you're trying to talk now or not. I just... uh disconnected from my wi-fi so we'll see i'm on my phone okay all right so you said she uh, has cerebral palsy yes and what's the prognosis how does that play out uh in what way 
I'm sorry, man. I'm I'm not able to have this conversation if if I can't even hear you. You keep I, I can't hear you at all. Uh, the, her prognosis is just it's just physical. She walks essentially just walks with a limp, but she can't drive. Right. Okay. And in what way would you say her friends have been trying to bust up the marriage? Like, what have they been saying? And I guess they're calling you the toxic one, right? Yeah, so the the big ones that stuck out were uh, that I've been critical of how they speak to her and their comments about how we choose to spend our money and uh, how we planned our wedding and how quickly we moved from dating to engaged to married. I mean, so those are categories, but what are they saying specifically? Uh, specifically, they were criticizing our difference in religion, saying that I belong to a cult and I'm just going to drive her away from her family and completely isolate her so that I'm the only one that she can rely on. And what evidence would they put forward for that if they were asked? Uh, the fact that I'm Mormon or LDS. That's it? Just Mormon is the magic word and, and all that? Pretty much. Okay, so try, try and, I'm not asking you to agree with them, but do try and get into the mindset of the people who are criticizing you because, you know, if you can't map your opponent, you can't win, right? So you have to be able to put yourself into their shoes, so to speak. So give me the case that you think your wife has been hearing. Can't hear you. Sorry. So the... The case that I believe my wife has been hearing has been uh, uh, mainly exacerbated by one of her extended family members that is also Mormon that is a bit eccentric and has voiced some very incorrect things about our religion that the wife needs to completely uh, be subservient to her husband and has to drop out of school, has to prioritize child care, and unfortunately, given that I couldn't find a job out where she lived, she moved out to be with me, so that just reinforced the, oh, he's isolating you. That was the first step, and then uh, we got pregnant, so she dropped out of college so she could uh, take care of the baby and... Uh, worry about her health because she was high risk given her disability. Right. Okay. 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 So in the marriage vows that you and your wife took, uh, was it basically to love, honor, and obey or something like that? And there is something in there about forsaking all others for the sake of the marital relationship. Was there anything like that in your vows? Yeah, there were... The pastor read the pretty standard vows, and then we 
wrote our own to input afterwards and that that was part of it okay we, so so I mean, the marriage vows are before we... the, the marriage vows are sacred right i mean to love honor support in sickness and in health until death do you part forsaking all others and so on now forsaking all others of course has a lot to do with don't date other people don't have affairs but the primary marital bond is between the husband and the wife the father and the mother of the children and no other relationships can come between that relationship is that something that you think your your wife would agree with For the most part, uh, she does have very strong ties to a sense of her her own family and friends that they're also always going to be a part of her life. But... Well, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. So how do you know or under what circumstances would they always be a part of her life? I mean, obviously, if there was someone who was unjustly trying to break up your marriage, and almost all attempts to break up a marriage would be unjust fundamentally, uh, I mean, unless there's outright abuse and so on. So you can certainly think of a situation wherein a friend who was trying to bust up the marriage would not be uh, someone who would remain in, in your life, right? I would agree with that. And would she? Which you'd have to because those were the vows. Like the vows are very serious. You know, like in law, you have the Constitution, you have the Bill of Rights, depending on where you are. And that's what you refer to when it comes to adjudicating disputes. And when it comes to disputes within a marriage, you go back to the vows. And if the vows say forsaking all others, in other words, if the vows say, look, if you ever have to choose between an honorable husband and a friend or a, a family of origin member and so on, that you choose the, the decent husband over that person. Like, that's the foundation. That's the, 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 the vows are not just there for decoration. They're not just there to spray paint on a cake. The vows are there where if you have some kind of disagreement or some kind of confusion about how the values are going to play out in the marriage, you refer to the vows, and that should be your, your answer. Like, you know, you said in sickness and in health, of course, you knew that your wife was disabled and, and that that may, you know, who knows what's going to happen down the road. You could get disabled. I could get disabled. Any number of things could happen, you know. But when I got sick, my wife didn't say, oh, well, you know, you're sick, right? You have cancer, so I'm out of here because it was like, no, no, we made the vows, right? In sickness and in health, if heaven forbid she would get sick, then uh, that would be my vow as well. So, uh, you know, a lot, it, it's, it's the most important contract you're going to sign as an adult is the vows that you put forward in your marriage. And so if there's anybody threatening the bond between you and your wife, you just, I mean, it's not even a debate, really, uh, assuming that you haven't done anything that would give, you know, legitimate alarm, like abusiveness or, or uh, drunkenness, or, you know, I'm assuming LDS, you're not particularly aligned that way. So it shouldn't be like a big, long discussion. It's like, no, 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 we made these vows that we are committed to each other first and foremost, and nobody else should come between us. And so if people are disrespecting the marriage, uh, they either need to change or go, because that, that's, that's the vows, right? I completely agree with that. I, I have no qualms with what you just said. It's, and originally, it was, I don't think my wife did either, because she did confront her. From you guys. But I, I don't know what they specifically said in refer, referring to me as being the toxic one and trying to isolate her. 
that's just what she told me. Well, look, I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, I'm sorry to say, like, it matters, obviously, like, in terms of the effects that it has on your wife. But it doesn't matter. Because as long as you're fulfilling your vows of marriage, that's what matters, right? So it should be a kind of open and shut case with regards to referencing the Constitution called the marriage, the marriage vows, right? Now, I mean, the marriage vows are the formal things that you say when you get married. But they're also just the general values that you have, right? So she knew your values as a Mormon when she married you. You knew her values, I assume. We had those conversations. And as long as you are fulfilling to a large degree the values that were the foundation of your relationship, the foundation of your dating and your engagement and your marriage, then, you know, it's it's not like, it's not a willful thing. It's not a, oh, well, I got to talk my wife into this, right? It's like, no, that's, you know, if, if you if you sign up for a job and they say we're going to pay you $15 an hour, then they pay you $15 an hour. It's not like, gosh, I hope they do. I really have to talk them into paying me $15 an hour. Like, that's the contract. That's the deal. That's what you agree on, right? So it's the same thing with, with the marriage vows, right? I mean, which is that's how you adjudicate disputes um, with regards to the marriage. Sorry, I'm just having a little problem with my earpiece here. But, yeah, that's how you adjudicate the problems with regards to the marriage. Um, it's not something that should be willed afterwards. Like you don't agree to $15 an hour in a job and then say, well, boy, I've really got to work hard to negotiate those $15 an hour. It's the same thing with, you know, your cell phone contract. Like say you get, I don't know, 10 gigs of, of data a month. Well, it shouldn't be the case that you sit there and say, well, you know what, I really got to, I've really got to work on, on making sure I get these 15 gigs a month every single month and they're going to come with lower and I'm going to try and negotiate. It's like, no, that's, that's that's the deal. That's done and dusted with regards to the marriage. So if there's someone, a friend, who is calling you toxic and not see and that's unfair as well. If if you want to get involved, and I don't strongly recommend it, but you know, there are times where I suppose it can be a decent thing. But if you want to get involved in someone else's relationship, you never, ever, 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 ever talk to only one party. That is a completely horrible thing to do. If you have an issue with the husband of a friend of yours or the wife of a friend of yours, you sit down with them together. You do not, do not, do not talk to just one party at the exclusion of the other. That is a, an inherently ugly, vicious, and destructive thing to do. And by definition, since it is so destructive to talk to one party and not the other, to have an ex parte communication with your wife without involving you in the discussion, without you even knowing what the accusations are, that person should be hit with the eject button as quickly as humanly possible. Because that's just such a terrible thing to do to a marriage. If she has particular issues, she needs to sit down with you and your wife and say, here's the things that I see that are bad to give you a chance to defend yourself, to understand the accusations against you. And if she's not willing to do that, your wife needs to ditch her, in my humble opinion, because that is, it doesn't matter what her criticisms are, the fact that she's only addressing criticisms of you with your wife and not giving you a chance to address and, and redress the, the criticisms, that's just incredibly destructive and should not be allowed in any marriage or dating relationship. Yeah. I completely agree. And that's when I 
talk to my wife about it. That's, that's not okay for her to be saying those things. Like, I get that you moved out of state for me. You. No, no, she didn't move out of state for you. No, 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 no. She did not move out of state for you. She moved out of state for the marriage. She moved out of state for her vows. She moved out of state for her. Okay. You understand? Yeah. It was not, I, I hope it wasn't some terrible sacrifice that she gave up everything to be with her husband. It's like, that's the deal. Your husband has to move somewhere. You move to where your husband is. Your wife has to move somewhere. You move to where your wife is. You know, if, if my wife suddenly decides to become an Arctic explorer, I guess I'll be <laughs> transmitting with a wider background. It's a pretty white foreground, but even a wider background. That's just the deal. It's, it's just not the way that things work. Because if it is viewed to be some kind of sacrifice for her to move to where her husband is, then that gives her leverage in the relationship that's entirely unfair and unjust. I'm sure that if she had to move somewhere for whatever reason and you had the capacity, uh, you would move to where she is. So the fact that she moved to be with you, again, that's part of the deal. That's the vow. I don't think she views it as a sacrifice. I think it's more of just a culture shock for her since... She lived there her entire life. She grew up there. And then all of a sudden, she's newly married and newly pregnant and doesn't have her family support structure that she's used to being five minutes down the road. They're now 2,000 miles away. Yep. So I, I think that's part of what's exacerbating not being not necessarily wanting to outright cut these people out of her life because they've been there since day one. They're what ties her back to where she was from. And I I don't know. Well, no, no. See, it's, it's not a matter of whether they should be in her life or not. But her loyalty is to you, the father of her child, the husband of of her wifeliness, right? So her loyalty is to you. So what happens is if somebody decides to criticize you, then what she does is she says, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just patch my husband here so you guys can talk directly. If she's out for lunch, she picks up the cell phone, she calls you, she puts you on speakerphone and she says, my friend has something that she wants to say to you, right? That's what she does. I don't think anyone would have the balls to say any of these things they've been saying to my face over the phone or in person. Well, but, but that's what your wife does. And, and your wife says, if you want to criticize my husband, we will get him in on the conversation. If you're too much of a chicken to talk to him directly, don't talk to me. My husband and I are one. He is the father of my child. He is the love of my life. My husband and I are one. And you will not drive a wedge between us by criticizing my husband without involving him in the conversation. If you're too chicken to involve him in the conversation, then you're a manipulative, destructive human being, and I do not want to have that part of our relationship. So criticize Barack Obama, criticize Donald Trump, criticize the ozone layer, criticize environmentalists, criticize whatever. But if you criticize my husband, 
I love him. I respect him. I admire him. If you criticize my husband, he has the right to confront his accuser and defend himself directly. And if you are too chicken, too cowardly to talk to my husband directly, I'm going to assume that every single one of your accusations is utterly unfounded and destructive. And I would say, listen, you would not like to have people spread negative rumors about you without having the chance to confront them, right? And, of course, any sane human would say, well, no, of course I don't want people to be spreading rumors about me without the chance to confront. It is foundational to any system of justice, whether it is personal or professional or legal. The capacity to confront and cross-examine your accuser is foundational to every system of ethics in the world. And the whisper campaigns are simply not going to be part of our relationship. If you have something to say about my husband, say it to my husband or shut up. It's simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's a, excuse me. Uh, There seems, that's not just like direct accusations. There's also been statements made of, oh, well, you've only been with your husband. How do you know if he's even good in bed and keeping you happy if you haven't gone out and experimented with other people? Okay, look, I don't know how to say this other than being perfectly blunt. If anyone, hang on, I don't know know how to say this without being perfectly blunt. You do not discuss your sex life with strangers. Like, what is the matter? If somebody starts to bring up the quality of your husband in bed, or the quality of your wife in bed? It's like, good Lord, what is the matter with people? That's not a subject for discussion among friends. I, would, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, that's like, wh- where is people's sense of just basic propriety and privacy, for God's sakes? That, that is I'm intensely personal between a husband mm-hmm. and wife. And so this idea that people would be trying to portray the man who is the... Father, I mean, obviously you, you had sex, right? So you know, yeah, I didn't have to had enough sex to, to make a baby. Yeah. But the idea that you would sit there and try and create sexual dissatisfaction on the imagination of the wife with regards to the father of her child, anybody who would try to do that to a marriage, to me, would just be that is so weird and so bizarre to start talking about sexual dissatisfaction third party with no evidence that's like that is seriously creepy that is seriously seriously creepy and you know like you're not going to discuss your sex life with other people maybe a doctor if you have to but you're not going to discuss your sex life with other people your wife shouldn't be discussing your sex life and if people start talking about you know your your sex life it'd be like whoa 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 (laughs) not appropriate this is between my husband and myself. This is absolutely not appropriate to talk about, and you better not bring this subject up again, and you better change it right now, or I'm going to get up and leave. Yeah, and uh, that, that's what ties into the parts of my question of my life. My wife is living the life that they wanted because she's bringing that up in the context of uh, this particular girl cheated on her boyfriend of nine years 
with another man and is now using that as justification for why she cheated and her boyfriend was apparently planning to propose had all these plans put a down payment on a condo for him and when he found out he scrapped the whole thing well good and and why would you want somebody who's a cheater in your life I don't. I, I'm completely on your Why side. would your wife want I'm someone who's a cheater side. in her life? That's a very good question, and I don't know. Now, listen, people can make terrible mistakes. And they can say, oh, my gosh, I cheated on my boyfriend. That's the worst thing ever. I need to get therapy. I need to get help. I need to journal. I need to figure out how I ended up doing this absolutely destructive, horrible, and disastrous thing. So, you know... People sin, as you know, right? People sin, and they should be given the opportunity to make amends, to be better, to right? But if instead yeah. of that process of self-reclamation and self-improvement, if instead what happens is the woman starts driving wedges between the relationships of those around her, then she is an entirely destructive and toxic individual and why you would want someone like that or why your wife would want someone like that anywhere in the vicinity is completely beyond me. Because infidelity is, this is something your wife maybe understands, maybe she doesn't, but if she doesn't, she needs to and everybody needs to understand this. Morality is highly contagious, and immorality is also highly contagious. There, is, there are study after study after study that shows very clearly that divorces spread socially within a community. If I had a friend who was going through a divorce and who was justifying it and, and did not have the self-knowledge, the discipline, the understanding to recognize that he or she had created some particular disaster, of course, especially if there were kids involved. But if they were justifying it, if they were constantly blaming the other person, if they were excusing themselves from the entire situation, I would say, I'm so sorry for what's happening to you. Best of luck. I can't, I can't help you. I can't be around you. Sorry. Because you're going through something that is very toxic and you're not owning it, which means it's going to spread. And I'm sorry. Like I... I trust my marriage. I trust my wife. My wife trusts me, but why would you want to go and knowingly lick the door handle of somebody with COVID, so to speak? It's like, yeah, man, maybe I'll be fine, but why would you want to even put yourself through that whole process, right? A lot of people, when they're drowning and you reach for them, as you know, they don't try and get out. They don't try and stabilize. They just, pull they just pull you down with them, man. They will take you down with them and staying away from the sort of Naya Riviera downdrafts or downcurrents of the world is really, really, really important. You know, we do not expose ourselves to people who are coughing up blood. We do not eat the furry yogurt. We do not take a bite out of the worm-ridden fruit. And we do not hang around people who are emotionally invested in undermining the happiness of others. And so this kind of unhappiness spreads like a virus. It is an STD. It's a syntactically transmitted disease or depression or whatever you want to call it, right? And so yeah. you, you got to be really careful with this kind of stuff. 
if if uh, people are going through some emotionally volatile self-justified kind of destruction in their environment they will spread it to you even if it's unconscious even if they don't mean to even if this and you just in my opinion can't have that and shouldn't have that in your life and again it's not about you don't care about of course you care about people like if somebody is like oh man i I'm, I, you know, my wife wants to divorce me. I've been a really terrible husband. I, I, I can't believe I've messed up this badly. I've got to find some way to fix it. I've got to go to therapy. I've got to, like, again, we can all make mistakes. I get that. But if people don't own those mistakes and don't regret their mistakes, then they will reproduce them and in you. That I have. There's I'm no sorry? self-responsibility. And that's, that's what I brought up with her, that if she was, and even slightly remorseful she did, then I might have some sympathy for her just lashing out, trying to help herself rectify the situation. But she's not. She's completely irremorseful. She's blaming everyone under the sun for everything that's gone wrong with her life. And it's actually what caused our first argument in our marriage was this situation that I wanted her to cut these people out of her life and she said no. And what was her reasoning for saying no? It was that their family and wait, sorry, the, the woman who's people. getting wait, sorry, I'm so sorry to interrupt. The um was it the case that was it the case that the woman who cheated on her boyfriend and he called off the proposal and so on, was it the case that that is a family member? Yes. Um, what, what is the family member relationship? A cousin. A cousin? Yes. Okay. Is, is there an asterisk in the marriage vows that says, unless it's a cousin? Nope. So again, you know, this is how you resolve these kinds of conflicts. Is you, you, you refer to the vows, forsaking all others. And, and also, uh, is, is your wife religious? She is. She's Christian. She's uh, Christian, okay. Okay, so, you know, breaking marriage vows is a significant sin. And again, I know they weren't married, but breaking vows of fidelity, uh, of monogamy is, is a great sin. And you don't um, enable sin, right? It doesn't mean that you hate it. It doesn't mean that, um, uh, that uh, any of this stuff. But it means that you don't, you know, if somebody's an alcoholic, you don't um, enable that, right? Yeah. Right, so if this woman uh, is is um, sinning, then you don't participate in justifications for that sin. You you may, of course, provide sympathy and so on. Should that be the case, that they, they have regret and they want to fix things and so on. But if they're justifying it, if they're attempting to spread that sin, then they are a great spiritual danger, and you don't participate in that, right? Because you're certainly not doing any good to the other person by participating in that kind of destructive behavior, right? 
Yeah. So again, you it should not be a um, a willpower situation. It shouldn't be a well. I have to convince you of this, like with reference to the values that is the foundation of your relationship, right? That should be how it plays. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I'd kind of kicking myself for not thinking of going that route, bringing up our marriage vows and. And reference to her Christian beliefs, right? Yeah. I mean, this woman has borne false witness. She has sinned, right? Oh, yeah. So that's really important. And, you know, what is and our, our relationship to sin, uh, our relationship to wrongdoing, I mean, it's complex. It's challenging. But there are some basics, which is, I mean, God does not forgive the sinner who does not repent, right? Right. So if your wife's cousin is not repenting, then she should not gain forgiveness. And I agree with that in, in philosophical terms, right? Because a refusal to repent is a promise of repetition. Whatever we justify, we repeat. Whatever we condemn, we at least have a chance of stopping, right? So... With reference to her Christian values, to say, okay, well, God, does God forgive sinners who don't repent? And the answer is no. It's like, well, why would you? D- do you believe that your morality is somehow superior to Lord God Almighty's morality? That doesn't make much sense, right? Do you believe that you can just make up opposite moral rules to divinely inspired foundational moral truths? Well, no. So, again, the answer is not a matter of personal willpower. The answer is not a matter of personal convincing or, you know, see it my way or here are the consequences. It's like, no, this is, she bore false witness. She cheated. She lied. She exposed her boyfriend, I assume, to dangers of sexually transmitted diseases and so on. And now she's justifying it and uh, causing trouble among. So, so this is a, um, an immorality of a very deep level without repentance, without remorse, without asking for forgiveness. And the Bible is very clear, very clear, blindingly clear, that there cannot be forgiveness without repentance. And you can pray for the woman and you can hope that she learns better. You can hope that she learns to um, take ownership and to repent of her wrongdoing. And you can talk about that, I suppose, with her. But if she is relentless in her self-justifications, your wife has no more power, so to speak, to forgive that woman than God himself does. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with all that. Good. It's it's more having a conversation with her again is what I'm going to just have to do because we've, we've kind of gotten to a few different spats over this particular person. There's a few others that I don't need to mention because it all stems back to the same of what you just said of doesn't matter who it is. You're my wife. We made vows. Well, um, what I would say is that why don't you call the cousin directly? There's an idea. Just call her up and say, hey, you got some criticism of me. Let's, uh, let's talk it out. Is the cousin also a Christian? She is. 
Yeah. Okay. So you know, it's 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 not fair to accuse people without them having the right of reply, right? Yeah. And so you are helping her to be a better Christian by giving her the right to put her criticisms of you front and center and discuss them openly. Okay. I'll definitely give that some serious consideration. Why wouldn't you do that? If you know, because you can also have your wife in that conversation as well. You can say, "Hey, let's all sit down together. We'll put it on our speakerphone. Let's let's hash this out, right?" Yeah, that that would be the, the route that I'd take instead of calling her up individually, just so that my wife can be there and hear everything that she says, instead of a game of telephone. Sure, absolutely. Now, your wife may, of course, uh, and, and probably would. Uh, freak out because the cousin would kind of panic because it's a lot easier to badmouth people behind their backs than it is to actually talk to them directly, right? Yeah. Well, in which case, you know, I, uh, I is, is it better, if you have a criticism of someone, is it better to whisper behind their back or to confront them directly? Well, of course, it's better to confront them directly. That's the moral thing to do. That's the not bearing false witness, so to speak, because gossip is a form of false witness and so on, right? Yeah. And um, just get things out into the open. These whisper campaigns are incredibly toxic and destructive. And uh, if, if, you, if the cousin simply refuses to have a conversation with you about her criticisms of you, then you simply have to say to your wife, look, this is an unrepentant gossip monger and destructive person who doesn't even have the courage to confront me directly, but instead whispers about me behind my back. And you just got to say, if you love me, you can't put up with this. Like, you can't. And, and the vows are essential, that you, force, you forsake all others. And I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, you know, maybe this woman's got great criticisms of me, right? Maybe I can hear and learn. And, of course, it's probably not true, of course, right? But, but you know, always open to hear criticisms. And if she won't confront you, if she's just going to badmouth you behind your back, well then can't can't have it can't have it right and you yeah. say to your wife you know would you like it if i had a friend who was bad mouthing you behind your back to me and would not have a conversation with you about it come on that's that's pretty clear right that's pretty bad that's pretty terrible behavior yeah well uh, i i really appreciate the the insight there and i'll take everything you said to heart and have a conversation with my wife tonight good good all right yeah try try as much as you can not to make things personal but to refer to uh, objective vows and promises and values that they already hold uh, you don't want to try and control people you want to help encourage them to be in conformity with their own values all right so appreciate that keep me posted of course and i suppose we shall move on Definitely. to the next caller thank you All right. So next, we have a question, uh, I guess, about your opinions or your thoughts about uh, how morality came to be. In general, did men develop a clearer or straighter moral sense compared to women? Considering that universally preferable behaviors are needed to maximize the quality of human relations, relations between strangers, 
and men were the ones who needed to go out and interact with other individuals to bring resources home, while women usually stayed with, within the family or close community, and therefore they did not really need to develop stricter standards for socializing with strangers. I'm going to paste that question to you. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's very interesting because, of course, that does kind of float into what we were just talking about with our, our friend the Mormon, right, just, just now, right? Mm -hmm. So let me just mm -hmm. get this up so I can uh, look at it without squinty 50-plus vision blurring it all out for me. Let's see here. So the first impulse towards morality comes from two aspects of traditionally male relations. The first aspect is the need to share labor and share winnings. So if you want to go uh, hunting, a lot of times you will need, you know, like, like a pack of uh, wild dogs or a pack of hyenas. You need cooperation in the hunt. In other words, one person may be driving the deer towards someone else, or, you know, one person may be riding the horse on the bison to the left, and someone else needs to ride the horse on the bison to the right, and, and so on, right? So you need that kind of cooperation. And some people have more dangerous jobs, being in the path of the buffalo is a little bit more dangerous than riding on either side and so on. But when it comes to cooperation in hunting, there has to be some rule, which is those who participate, according to the degree of risk, danger, and skill, get a proportional share of the winning. So maybe there's a better or more tasty part of the deer or the buffalo or something like that. And so whoever takes on the most difficult and dangerous task is the one who gets first pick. But everybody who productively participates in the hunt has to be guaranteed some kind of sharing, right? So this reciprocal, if you work and you contribute, then you gain resources from the hunt, that is one of the first aspects of morality, and it's essential, because if people who work to get the hunt are suddenly barred from getting the proceeds of the hunt, then they will go off and hunt alone, uh, they will not participate in future hunts, and so on, and what will happen, of course, is that things will become much less productive thereby. So instead of everyone getting a giant buffalo, uh, you know, everyone comes back with a rabbit, <laughs> which is, you know, far fewer calories, particularly for the kids. And this, of course, occurs in the realm of, of farming as well as agriculture, right, because it takes a lot of work, particularly pre-machinery, to plow, to irrigate, to plant, to protect, to grow, to harvest, to grind, and all that kind of stuff. Like, it takes a huge... So, you know, the Amish thing where everybody helps build the barn kind of thing. So when it comes to people who contribute get a fair share of that which is produced that is sort of the basis of reciprocal contracts and, and a belief or an acceptance that if you work, you gain the rewards thereby. And so that is one aspect of morality that is necessary. And it's not just human beings who do that. Of course, the wild dogs also hunt, but they'll sort of snap and growl at each other to try and get the best. So at least you can agree ahead of time what the rewards are of hunting and that reciprocal Contract-based negotiation is what drives the calorie acquisition that keeps the tribe going, keeps the children and the breastfeeding women in particular fed who need an extra couple of hundred calories at least a day and so on. So you need that aspect of things. With regards to conflict, the capacity to physically injure each other is one of the things that drives men's sense of morality. 
which is um, because men can commit great violence against each other. And look, and women can against each other and women can against men too. But in general, you know, the extra testosterone, the aggression, the upper body strength and so on, that if a man is uh, wronged in some fundamental way and fundamental way like someone sleeps with his wife, uh, someone uh, takes his food, someone harms his child and so on, then the traditional response of men is violence, right? I mean, we're talking sort of Stone Ages and so on. The traditional response of men to some sort of foundational or interest injury is violence, right? We've all sort of heard these stories of, you know, the dad who who catches the kid, uh, catches the, the pedophile preying upon the child and beats hell out of him and so on. And there's lots of guys out there, and I'm sure some women too, who are like, yeah, you know, like we, we sort of understand. Or, or if somebody's caught who's been attacking children, there are, of course, always the people on the internet. And it comes from a pretty deep and powerful place who say, you know, well, just, just give the dads of the neighborhood uh, that guy for the weekend and, and see what happens, right? So there is that capacity to injure other men that has to be dealt with in some manner. And so prevention being by far the better part of cure, you want to try and figure out situations wherein predation from male to male is prevented. Because let's say some guy comes and harms your child and you go and kill him. Well, he's got children and now you've got a single mom situation and you've got children who are going to be hungry. Like now you have a big mess on your hands. So you do want to try and figure out some way, if possible, to prevent the harming of one man by another man, because again, the blowback is traditionally violence, which is unstable. And of course, it can provoke these kinds of uh, clan, you know, Hatfield McCoy clan warfares, where, you know, uh, this guy, I mean, I remember this when I was a kid playing Defender in a bowling alley, and some kid unplugged my game because I was doing well, and he wanted to play, and I called him a jerk, and then his brother went to get me, and and so on. So you can have these things kind of escalate, right? One guy hurts uh, or injures the interests of some a guy hits on his girlfriend or something, then the guy pushes him, the other guy comes back with his brothers, and then the other clan goes back. It can really escalate from there to the point where a number of the sort of fighting, hunting, prime of life men of the tribe are disabled or dead, right? So, you, Which lends you to be prey to starvation or predation from some other tribe that has figured out how to try and prevent these things. So if you have a code of honor, a code of morality, which involves having clear-cut rules about, you know, don't sleep with another man's wife, uh, don't initiate the use of force, don't steal, don't whatever, right? Then what happens if, if you could figure out a way to get those rules across and you will probably try to infuse them with some aspect of divinity or absolutism that comes from religion in order to really pound these rules into the bone marrow of the men of the tribe then you will have a better chance to prevent the kind of conflicts that result in injury and fatherlessness uh, for a family and so on. And that's good. Uh, And the other thing, too, is that if you can figure out ostracism rather than violence as a means of punishment for transgression, then you're way ahead of the game. And, of course, prison is a kind of ostracism, right, which is kind of an exiling to a place where you can't interact with general society and you're sort of isolated, of course, from general society. So it is a form of exile or ostracism to put people in prison. And so if you can get the rules ground in, if you can infuse them with the divine, you prevent a lot of conflicts. If when there are conflicts, 
then you ostracize rather than uh, kill. Ostracism, of course, may drive away one member of your tribe, one male member of your tribe, but it won't get the kind of escalation. It won't get the kind of um, injuries or death that can occur that weaken you as a fighting force or a hunting force, which threatens the survival of the tribe as a whole. So A, risk and reward, or effort and, and hunting reward, and B, the capacity to, or the, the goal of trying to minimize violent conflicts between uh, men, th- these are really are the foundations of morality. And it's different with regards to the, you know, general and traditional um, growth of ethics within uh, women, because women generally are much more cooperative when it comes to these kinds of things. And women, of course, generally wound with words rather than fists, right? This is what we just heard about in the last call, right? That the cousin who's, you know, obviously un- unhappy with her, th- this guy's wife's marriage or, or him or whatever. And so rather than direct confrontation and so on, she gossips, she negatives, she sows Iago-style poison seeds in the brain and all that kind of stuff. And that's um, that's how women generally tend to fight, is through, through gossip and reputation damage and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's really... Um, that's really tough. Direct confrontation doesn't generally tend to work in this kind of way, which is why you know when this guy I was guy I was just talking to says, oh, well, I'll call up this cousin, have a direct conversation with her and with my wife. It'll be like, oh, my gosh, the worst possible thing ever. Whereas, you know, for a guy to confront another guy may not be quite as uh, unthinkable and so on, right? And so men are afraid of violence. Women are generally afraid of um, reputational damage and uh, or, or and sort of poison seeds of of unpacking dangerous language into the ear of a susceptible woman and so on and so that tends to be the way things work men compete of course women cooperate and so for men you want equality of opportunity because you want to be able to win as much as possible and therefore get the most fertile attractive intelligent woman so to speak whereas women tend to be more cooperative. And so while men want equality of opportunity, women generally want equality of outcome. And that, of course, is the distinction or difference between the left and the right as a whole, between capitalism and socialism as a whole. Uh, Capitalism is equality of opportunity. Socialism is equality of outcome. And a lot of that has to do, of course, with the fact that because women are generally historically have been on the receiving end of the food and and whatever resources the men go out and win for women redistributionism makes a good deal of sense because there was no storage for most of our resources in the past i mean you could make jams you could make uh pickles and so on but you know, it's not like you could you know if you've ever seen uh, into the wild you know the guy uh gets some meat but he has no way of keeping it fresh you know the flies land on it it goes rotten and so on and so when the men bring home a boar or whatever it is that they've caught, I mean, in the Bear Grylls uh, episode, The Island, they, they kill an alligator, which is like 15,000 calories or something like that. Well, you, you, you might as well share it equally to, to among the kids, among the families, because you can't keep it anyway. So men gain status from going out and hunting better. But when, it, when you bring it back home, redistribution makes sense. In other words, equality of opportunity is great for hunters, but equality of outcome tends to be better for for females and for families. And if you say to someone, well, I can't keep this boar leg, it's going to go bad by tomorrow, but I'm not going to let you eat it, that would just be such a, uh, 
a volatile and, and hateful and destructive thing to do. Like, I would rather you starve than me give you some food. I mean, that would be, that would be total fighting words, so to speak, right? So men like uh, the competition aspect of equality of opportunity because they can maybe go out and win more resources, get more land, uh, uh, maybe herd more cattle, maybe whatever it is. They like that equality of opportunity. But the resources that are then shared among the wives and children, they generally gravitate more towards equality of, uh, of outcome. And uh, again, we're sort of talking evolution to the tipping point of the 10,000-year explosion of the agricultural uh, aspect. And then, of course, once the market comes along, equality of opportunity becomes really important because you can become fabulously wealthy relative to uh, how the wealth disparities in a sort of more primitive tribe. And so for women, egalitarianism of outcome generally serves their needs because you might as well, I mean, you, maybe your kids get a little less food, but at least they've got something to eat uh, if there's equality of outcome. So for women, if someone comes home with more and they can't eat it, they can't keep it themselves, and therefore they might as well share it with others, that just sort of fundamentally appeals. Like for women's instincts to not share what you cannot keep would, would, make, would make no sense at all, right? You, you can't keep meat. It's not going to like even the next day or the day after. I mean, it's I guess you can dry it and, and make beef jerky and stuff like that. But as a whole, if you can't keep it, but you won't share it, that's really directly contrary to any filial feeling in, in a tribe. So you might as well share. So for women, yeah, you should you should share, particularly if you have excess, whereas men are like, well, no, I want to have the equality to go out equality of opportunity to go out and try and get access so that I can have access with which to woo the best uh, woman, the most fertile woman, the most even featured, attractive, hip-to-waist ratio woman, and so on. And so that, I think, is one of the reasons why we have the concept of justice, right? Justice being um, retaliatory or retributionary capacity, whereas social justice is around sharing an egalitarianism of outcome, and that's traditionally male uh, versus female requirements. Sorry for that fairly lengthy, somewhat intro, but that's the way I see it plays out. Uh, it plays out. What do you think? Oh, th thank you, Stefan. Uh, I did this question, but I was a bit uh, more willing to hear you first, then I could jump in and, and try to say something else. Um, I, I came out with this question because I was uh, uh, talking with a friend about like how we could come to a logical um, reason uh, for uh, the, the fact that men are less tolerable, uh, less tolerant, tolerant uh, about um, the generosity and, and deviant behavior of, than women is towards men, right? Hmm. Go on. Uh, I, I mean, for example, uh, at least we, when we are like teenagers, it's, it's a pretty like common uh, teenager movie um, play that like oh this this young uh, t uh, boy is very like bad boy and he's tough and he does some kind of uh, deviant behavior and some girls are like oh he's hot and I can help him become a better guy and all this kind of um, nurturing I don't I'm not sure if it's nurturing the, the word but uh, like it it looks like like the girls Usually, at least like in this particular scenario, uh, it seems that they don't see like the immorality, the more deeper immorality of his actions, then 
otherwise like if if a guy uh and, and a girl was like more deviant and she was like uh doing bad stuff and all those things the guy um, usually would be more um less 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 proactive uh, towards her uh, i'm not sure if i put that uh, in a meaningful sense no no i think i think i i think i understand so the the big question for women is why will the man commit to me why will the man commit to me and the two answers as a whole throughout all of human history is one of two things either personal qualities of character or sexual access right <laughs> those are the two things now it's not that they can't be co-joined or anything but that's generally the way that these questions have been answered throughout human history so if a woman goes for qualities of character then she displays steadfastness and loyalty and intelligence and good humor and skills and conversational abilities and you know well-read or whatever it is right so she has qualities of character and that is what draws the man uh, to her but uh, I don't know, you've, you've probably seen that famous improvised scene in Indiana Jones, the, the first one, where, you know, he's in the Middle Eastern marketplace and the guy comes out. There was supposed to be this big sword fight, but I think Harrison Ford had the flu and he just pulled out his gun and shot the guy and they decided to keep it in the movie. And um, so, you know, you, you can learn all of these big ninja moves, but a guy with a gun is just going to take you down, right? And that is the difference between quality of character and simply sexual access, right? So quality of character is all these ninja moves. Sexual access is, okay, I'm going to win this fight by just shooting a guy, right? And so if a woman decides to or is encouraged to or ends up in the situation where she offers sexual access in return for male loyalty, then the more power her sexual access has, the more secure she can be in keeping the man's interest, keeping the man's loyalty, keeping the man's um, commitment to her, right? So it's the old, you know, we, we all know this thing where um, some guys with some girl, we can't figure out why, and sort of the cliche is, well, she must be able to suck a golf ball through a garden hose in order to keep that guy around, right? So you know, she, she developed sexual skills, sexual abilities, sexual athleticism, sexual whatever it is, right? Maybe deviancy for that matter. And then the greater power that she has over the man with regards to offering up sexual access, in other words, the more that she can change him because of his lust for her, the more secure she's going to feel that she can not only get him but also keep him with regards to sexual access. Now, that is uh, it's a very da dangerous game for women as a whole. Qualities of character tend to be, you know, slow but steady wins the race. Qualities of character tend to keep a man around because, you know, sexual access, um, obviously it's all, all well and good. But if the woman offers up sexual access to the man, then, you know, deep down men understand that sexual access generally does not remain constant uh, over the course of a long-term relationship where you have um, children, uh, sleeplessness, illness, you know, it it waxes and wanes the yay verily like the moon, so to speak. And therefore, and, and of course, you know, when you have, you know, a whole series of young kids and so on, I mean, it's not like you're 
in that Madonna song, you know, satin sheets are very romantic, right? What happens when you're not in bed? Well, um, sexual access becomes a whole lot less important when you have two or three screaming babies and toddlers in the house and you're having precious little time to have a lot of, uh, you know, toe-curling sex uh, between satin sheets like the way you had on your honeymoon and so on. So it's just the way. And, of course, people get older, they age and so on. Libido tends to diminish a little bit as, as time goes along and if you don't have qualities of character, right? So it's very much an R-selected strategy, if you remember my presentations on Gene Wars, which, again, you can check out on LBRY. You can check out, uh, I think they're on BitChute as well or, or, or that. So the Gene Wars presentations... Uh, sexual access is R selected. Qualities of character is K selected. R being uh, little investment in offspring, and uh, you just keep having babies till you run out of food. Whereas K is more investment in offspring and and fewer babies and and um, management of of resources from a more consequential standpoint. And so, for a woman, the the, the fantasy for the woman is that she holds, like for the, the fantasy for the R-selected woman is that she holds such powerful capacities of sexual attraction that she can literally change a man's personality. And so for a woman, if there's a hot guy and, and she can get him to change because of her sexual hypnotic power over her, you know, the, the sort of traditional modern stories around this are, you know, Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey, right, where... These, you know, nondescript women have powers of sexual access so great that they can fundamentally transform the men in their lives, right? The vegetarian vampire um, and uh, the, you know, the, the S&M guy, um, Christian Grey and so on, right? So they have such sexual allure that men will fundamentally change their personalities, and that's how they try to translate sexual allure into a lifelong commitment when, you know, it's really like trying to build an inverted pyramid to base a relationship on sexual allure, as I've talked about with many, many people in these shows over the last 15 years. You, you, it's, a bad, it's a bad idea. It's a really, really, really bad idea to try and build a long-term relationship on mere sexual attraction. It is a disaster waiting to happen, and you've got to go for qualities of character. But, of course, the great fantasy of the woman is uh, that she's so sexy that the man will fundamentally change for her and that way she doesn't have to develop qualities of character because she can uh, uh, spread her legs or her cheeks, I suppose. But, but if, if, she, if she finds a guy that can actually like uh, uh, fall in her bait, uh, between quotes, but can change, she can change him, make him change, uh, is not that a very bad thing in long term for the girl? Because if if she could, if he is not that strong, I mean, in morals and etc., in virtues and all that stuff, that she could, uh, she had bended uh, his his virtues and morals to her will. It it's, it it means that maybe someone can do that again in the future with him. Oh yeah, like as I said, it's a bad strategy. For sure. Because the other thing, too, is that he could simply pretend to be under her sexual spell, have sex with her, and then leave. Right? So for a woman to be that desired, right? So um, if, if, you know, the, the Fifty Shades of Grey, right? I mean, this is the, the story. Anastasia, I think, is, is the woman's name, right? So Anastasia 
is, you know, a, a boring, deadbeat, kind of plain Jane woman who works in a hardware store and I think in a publishing house or whatever. And she's not an entrepreneur. She's not a brilliant writer. She's not a very moral person. She's just some girl who trundles along in life in a pretty low rent situation and occupation. And then, lo and behold, uh, Christian Grey just becomes completely obsessed with her. And he basically stalks her, and he threatens her, and, you know, he's scary, and he beats up a guy he thinks is hitting on her. And so for a woman, this is deeply, again, not all women, obviously, but, but in general, right? There's a reason why this is like this, like, brutal, softcore, hardcore pornography in many ways is um, the most popular book ever written for women and why it makes all the women's protestations about the aggressive sex scenes in The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged seem all kinds of ridiculous, right? Turns out, turns out that uh, Ayn Rand knew female nature pretty well, pretty well. But um, so, so he becomes obsessed with her, and she rules him and owns him because of his desire for her. Now, his desire for her is fundamentally inexplicable. But you see, it doesn't need to be explicable because it's attempt. It's appealing to female vanity, narcissism, and wanting to gain control over a man without having the self-control of personal virtue, right? So, like, I could be a really, really great woman. I could study business. I could really help him with his business. I could help him with his trauma. I could, you know, or I could just let him chain me up. (laughs) You know, I mean, for women, it's like, it's a whole lot easier to just let him uh, chain you up rather than develop all the virtues that would make you a very valuable lifelong companion to him in, in his business life and in his personal life and so on. And in the very, I did sort of grip my teeth and get through all three of the movies because it really was quite a phenomenon. I did reviews, if I remember, at least on a couple. At the very end of the third movie, um, she appears to be surrendering to him, but she turns and smiles because she knows that she's in control of him through her seeming surrender to him, that she controls him. Because for some reason, she's the woman in the world that he wants to beat up most. Right? I mean, it's, it's nuts. It's, it's crazy. But it's this thirst for the unearned. Right? It's this, like, it's, so men have these fantasies of superpowers. Right? Like they're Superman. They, they, they you know, can fly. They, they have force fields. They, they have spider web. Like what, they have these superpowers. They don't really earn them. Like it just kind of happens to them. Like you just happen to be launched off Krypton by your dad, Marlon Brando, and... And there you go uh, onto the land uh, of Earth where you last until you fall off a horse. But for men, we want these superpowers. And which which we don't really earn, but they just allow us to do amazing things and and give us the vanity of, of uniquely powerful characteristics. For women, they want the superpower of a man losing his mind over sexual attraction to her, which is why, of course, I mean, it explains a good two-thirds of the modern economy, right, which is why the economy crashing is not necessarily the worst thing in the world because when the economy crashes, uh, women will probably stay home with their children more and, you know, I guess the old-timey conservative values might get a kind of resurgence. But if you look at the economy, the economy, um, significant portions of it, sometimes it seems the majority, is attempting to give women the superpower of being sexually alluring to the point where a man will sacrifice and commit to her simply in return for sexual access. And 
women want that and the powers that be want women to want that because otherwise women will have to look at qualities of character and stability and maturity and morality and consistency and integrity and all that kind of stuff which would fundamentally shift values in the world to the point where families would be more stable, they wouldn't need the state as much. And so the more that you can get women to try and roll the grenade of sexual attraction into the man tent of uh, individuality, uh, the more that you're going to get these families that crash together and break up and the more that women are going to feel helpless and insecure, which means they're going to vote for socialism. Like there's a whole complicated set of politics and everything uh, around all of this. But um, the superpower of being desired for women is, it's their greatest temptation. Like the temptation for men is to sleep with a lot of women without realizing that you are hurting women in a way that you yourself will not be hurt, right? Because men can survive promiscuity a lot better than women can for obvious biological reasons of asymmetrical investment in pregnancy and childbirth and so on. And so for men, it's like sleeping with a lot of women. That's their uh, kryptonite for women. Uh, being sexually attractive is their uh, kryptonite. And of course, sexual attraction is only supposed to last for a couple of years, from like 18 to 20 or 18 to 21. And then historically, you got picked, you got married, you started having babies. You got stretch marks, your ass began to sag, and your boobs seem to, as I write in The God of Atheists, your boobs seem to want to consummate a love affair with your belly button. And so the sort of fire of female beauty and sexual attractiveness is, is like, it's like a match lit and, and, you know, it flares up and then it burns out and then, you know, it goes, you, you take it off your hands. But what happens now is that women want to milk, so to speak, the sexual attractiveness that they have year after year, decade after decade. And then when it burns out in their late 30s, early 40s, and they haven't used it to create the foundation of marriage and children and stability and virtue and all that kind of good stuff that coasts you in the second half of your life, well, they've used that drug and they've burnt themselves out. They've used that superpower and they've, they end up kind of inhuman in a way because they're not warned that this is supposed to be used to help build the foundation of a family. Uh, it's not supposed to be used to just get free dinners for 20 years and then starve to death for the next 40, so to speak. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, just to sew up like the whole uh, uh, thing is that you, I, I love the way you, you answered me the, like the, the first question uh, because it, it was more like a more like basic instinct uh, way to, to explain this, this whole situation of morality, like how the men developed uh, the more the moral moral standards that we got, and so like this this when I, I came in this this is more um, to show like a, a, that actually there is like a difference between uh, moral morality between uh, men and women and like men tend to be because of the situation needs to be more moral than women but you of course like as a father and at, uh, we as like a, a brothers of sisters etc we can also like try to do our job and and bring up these morality standards for for all the <laughs> Goes around us, right? <laughs> yeah, look, it's really, really important for fathers to remind their daughters that, like, hey, you, you didn't earn male hormones. 
you didn't earn the fact that men are sexually attracted to women. And it doesn't mean you, you know, should, shouldn't enjoy the attention and, and there's nothing wrong with sex is great and all of that, but you, you can't take personal vanity over that which you did not earn. You know, I, I, you know, some people get mad at me for pointing this out with regards to your ancestors. It's like, okay, well, you, I guess you can admire people or races or cultures or ethnicities that have done good things in history, and every culture has added something to human history that's well worth appreciating and perhaps even admiring. But you can't take pride in that which you did not do. And, you know, again, you may look at your ancestors and say, wow, they really inspire me, but you, you, you can't take pride because your ancestors did stuff because that's... You know, that's, it's, it's a form of theft. You didn't earn it, but you want to take pride in it. That's not fair, right? And it's the same thing with female attractiveness. Yeah, you know, if you're, a, if you're a hot girl and you're, you know, 19 years old, a lot of guys are going to want to go out with you. But that's not because you did something to earn that. That's just that, you know, maybe you do your sit-ups or you exercise or whatever, but you only, to a large degree, you will only tone yourself because you want men to, to ask you out and so on. And it's really tempting to take the fact that men want to ask you out and think that that means that you yourself have value in some existential way. And it doesn't. And that's really tough. And we don't have a lot of pushback on this. There used to be a lot of pushback on this. You know, the warning of the the old maids and the warning of, you know, if you keep waiting too long to fall in love, your chance will pass you by and you'll be just left with the dregs and so on. We, kept, we keep this knowledge from women, and when they're in the full flush of their youthful sexual power, we just encourage them to pursue that. You know, all of this Instagram stuff and, and women posing in bikinis and so on. And again, you know, female form is beautiful, and women are sexy, and it's wonderful, and it's lovely, and it's a great part of life and so on. But you didn't earn it. You didn't earn the fact that men have a built-in desire to throw resources at attractive <laughs> females. You know, it's funny. So many years ago before I was married, um, I would go to yoga class on Sunday afternoons. I did like an hour and a half of Ashtanga yoga, which was uh, yoga, which was great. And then I, I went and got another hour and a half massage. Uh, it was like aromatherapy massage, essential oils. Really, really nice. Really, it was a nice way to spend a Sunday afternoon. It was my sort of treat for the week because I was working really hard on books and, and uh, IT and, and all of that. So that was nice. Now, I mean, I enjoyed yoga. Don't get me wrong. I think it was good for me. But uh, the fact that there were a lot of attractive women in the yoga class was not the worst thing in the world. And, you know, I would chat with them. I went out with a couple and it was, you know, not, no one who really clicked, but it was kind of nice. Anyway, and then there was this one woman in the yoga class who was, I mean, probably as close to a 10 as you can get without some creepy Japanese cyborg beaming into your brain. And I chatted with her a couple of times uh, and so on. Uh, but of course, you know, she had the weariness of the very attractive woman and so on. And she was talking about wanting to start a business, right? And it was the usual you know, if you're an attractive woman, it's the model, actress, real estate, life coach, you know, just stuff that you don't, you know, that, that you're going to use your looks in some manner or another. And I, I don't begrudge it. You know, the looks are important and it's fine. But um, I do remember talking to her and her telling me about her desire to, to start this business and so on. And I literally had to, like, I felt this urge or this impulse to say, you know, hey, I, I could invest in you. 
in your business. I didn't know her business experience or anything like that. Oh, I could invest in your business. Because then, you see, we'd have to have business meetings, and she'd realize what a great guy I was. Anyway, so, but I had to, like, you know, slap myself in the face and say, you've got to be kidding. Like, this is not, this is not a sane way to get involved in anybody's business. That That's, like, ulterior motives, and it's it's not honest, and it's not um, productive. And anyway, so, but that's that's how you know, crazy men are, I was, you know, many years younger as well, that's how crazy men are for, like, really, really attractive uh, women that uh, we will, um, we will go nuts, you know, I'm, I'm sure every, every guy at one time or another has seen a really, really attractive woman in a car, and not that anyone would ever do this, but you, you have, the, I've had the thought, I guess, I have the thought to say, well, you know, gosh, if we were to get into an accident, I would totally get her number <laughs> And it's like, that makes no sense at all, right? Obviously, it's a terrible way to get someone's number. But it would be kind of true. You'd have to exchange numbers and, and all of that. It's like, hey, remember me from the ding, <laughs> from the ding of your car? So, yeah, we, we go a little crazy around attractive women. And it's important as a father to raise your daughter to say, you know, hey, enjoy it. You know, enjoy the male attention. It's a wonderful part of life. And I hope that it helps you, you know, get your pick and choice uh, of, of quality men and so on. But don't imagine that it makes you, as a mind, as a personality, it doesn't make you more valuable as a human being. It just means that men want to make babies, right? <laughs> or, you know, have sex or whatever, right? And, and it's tough because you don't want to make a prude, like, oh, it's all just negative. And, but you also don't want to have someone who is going to be taking personal pride in the unearned. Because that's a really great way to hollow hollow things out, you know? I mean, so as we sort of talked about before, the equivalent for men is would be to inherit, you know, $10 million, right? That would kind of be the equivalent for men, to sort of inherit $10 million and then think that that makes you a really great businessman. And, of course, you know, there is that temptation for men. If you do have a rich family, you do inherit a lot of money, to think that that somehow makes you a more valuable human being, when you didn't earn it, when you did not earn it. And I think that trying to keep people away from the unearned is really, really important. To keep people from investing their sense of personal value into things that they did not create is a really essential part of life uh, and just unfortunately not really happening as much anymore. Uh, cool, cool. Uh, so you think that like the biggest hit for a woman is like uh, if if she's offering uh, sexual access to a guy and the guy rejects it, uh, is it like a the biggest hit that she could get? Well, if okay, so I mean, most men have a fundamental reproductive strategy called aim at the top and work your way down until you get a woman who will go out with you. And, I mean, that was certainly my approach when I was a teenager, was I, I asked out the, the queen bee of, of the high school and did not, uh, did not make it. Uh, so I went to the second tier, and that was where I settled in, right? And, and I think it was fine, uh, and it was good all around, but... So the, the general strategy for men is, you know, start at the top and work your way down. Now, that's, 
to some degree, that's the way that women work, but generally still the vast, I think it's 80, 85% of dates are the man asking the woman out or the boy asking the girl out and so on. So women generally don't pursue, they make themselves attractive and see who will pursue them, right? So you, I remember my grade six dance uh, when I was only first starting to get interested in girls uh, that you uh, would go to the gym and that, you know, the, the boys would line up on one side of the darkened gym and the girls would line up on the other. And you'd have to have this no man land trench warfare stroll across um, to, to go and ask a girl out. And, and you, would, you would walk down the row of the girls and you would say, okay, well, um, I need to ask a girl to dance with me. And you start fast dance. You don't start slow dancing. That's for later when you get all confused because Stairway to Heaven is both slow and fast at various times. But you walk down the row of, of the girls and you say, okay, I need to ask a girl out. She, she can't be so attractive that she won't go out with me or she won't go on a uh, dance with me because she's waiting for somebody higher up on the food chain, so to speak. So she can't be... I can't ask a girl so attractive she's not going to dance with me, but I can't ask a girl so unattractive that my friends will make fun of me. It's brutal. I don't get me. I'm not advocating or think it's a wonderful thing. And, and it was better, of course, when we had, you know, communities of values like religion, and Christianity and so on, where we could learn the qualities of people rather than simply judging them like a ball pound of horse flesh or whatever. But that's kind of the way that things go, that you kind of got to angle your way in so that you get as high a quality a woman as you can without being rejected or laughed at, you know, which is like, oh, my God, can you believe that that guy came up and asked me out? Like, who does he think he is? And, you know, I'm waiting for the stud muffin football player, not the geeky mathlete who has much more of a future fundamentally in a knowledge economy. And so for a woman, if she stakes her value on sex appeal, then certainly for the man to not want to have sex with her is a huge blow. I guess you could take that both ways. But it is a huge blow, but that's usually not what women face. Because for most men, if a woman offers sexual access, they will say yes, uh, you know, unless, you know, I don't know, she's very obese or or there's some other particular unattractive aspect to her that uh, it's just it's too much of a dip but any sort of reasonably attractive woman if she offers up sex to a man the man will generally say yes so the problem is not for women will he have sex with me that's usually in the affirmative the problem with women is will he commit to me and there of course has been this race to the bottom that's just been unbelievably brutal with regards to this stuff. The race to the bottom is that in the past, there used to be kind of a cartel monopoly with regards to, to women, right? So the cartel monopoly was women don't give sex to men unless they're married, unless they get married, right? So there was a, a cartel, a, a monopoly cartel on sexual access. You know, uh, don't, 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 hand me low, don't hand me no lines and keep your hands to yourself, as that old song goes, you know? Uh, I'm not going to have sex with you until I get a wedding ring, right? That was the sort of traditional way that things went. And women could be reasonably assured that women who broke that monopoly would be punished significantly, right? So if you got the reputation as the town slut or the town whore or all this kind of stuff, then you were considered to be cheating by offering up 
sex without commitment, thus devaluing the value of commitment to the women who were withholding sex, right? Uh, and, you know, like if, if, uh, if all of these water bottle vendors are lining up on the edge of a desert and they're all charging and say, oh, we're going to charge, oh, charge 20 bucks for a bottle of water, right? Then if everybody keeps to their word, then the, the price of the bottle of water is, is 20 bucks. If one guy decides to sell it for 10 bucks, then suddenly the price of the water becomes 10 bucks. Uh, and so if you hold this monopoly cartel that was enforced through religion and through ostracism, then the woman who slept around, the man, the men would sleep with her and the men were generally not blamed because, you know, boys will be boys and, and men are primed to spray and pray and women are designed to commit and connect. And so if the woman hand, handed out sexuality, then she risked, of course, getting pregnant. And if she'd had sex with a number of men, she could never in the past prior to DNA, of course, prove who the husband, sorry, who the father of her child was, and then the family as a whole would end up with this single mom, and they'd have to raise the child herself, or they'd send her away for an abortion to some other, sometimes some other country, it used to happen. And of course, remember, abortions are relatively new uh, in this sort of annals of, of human history, at least safe abortions. And so there was this cartel, and the women who broke it would be, it would be ostracized, would, um, uh, you know, it, it's the line that's... Um, that Mitch says in Streetcar Named Desire to Blanche Dubois, he finds that she's been sleeping with everyone and she says, so you're not going to marry me? And he says, no, you're not clean enough to bring into the house with my mother. Right, this sort of uncleanness. Like he's willing to sleep with her, but he won't marry her. And this, of course, was wise because women who have a lot of sexual partners are much more likely to divorce and, and destroy their marriages and, and be unfaithful. And it, it really is a marker of, of extraordinarily dangerous dysfunction for this kind of stuff. So, yeah, so women used to have a cartel. And now the, the, the awful decision that women have to make is say, okay, well, if the man can go and get sex from the woman next to me, what do I do? What do I do? In other words, can I really charge $20 for a bottle of water if the man next to me is charging $10? Well, I could say, hey, my bottle of water is more pure and it's of higher quality and you can keep the bottle. And it's like, but a man who's thirsty, we're just like, look, look, cheapest bottle of water, right? And, and... You know, I hate to sort of be this reductionist, but frankly, for a man who wants to get his rocks off, a hole is a hole is a hole. <laughs> a rose is a rose is a rose, as Gertrude Stein said famously, and a hole is a hole is a hole. And so because men, particularly teenage and 20s, you know, kind of crazed with hormones and, and desperate for sex, if women are putting out, if girls are putting out, then what are the other girls supposed to do? Well, if she says no, 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 then she's concerned, and you know, not unjustly so, that the man's going to uh, lose interest. Particularly if she says no sex before marriage, then unless the man shares her particular religious convictions, usually that would be the case. Then the man's going to be like, well, you know, good luck with that, but Sally down the road, uh, you know, you can have sex with her after three dates or two dates or maybe even one date. I don't know, right? And so, that if if she doesn't offer sex, then she might, or she faces significant risk of losing the man's attention. If she offers, uh, if, if she does offer sex, then she might get the man's attention. But then the problem is keeping the man's attention because a woman who gives up sex too early, we all know this fundamentally as men, uh, it's fun, but it's not, you know, that, that's shack material, not wife material. Right, that that's the woman who gives up sex too early, does um, 
you know, maybe manipulative, maybe hoping to hook you into that sort of sex mad fever dream of one-itis. Um, but uh, a, a woman who gives up sex too early uh, is someone who has done it in the past, so to speak, and, and may have an STD and, and may have a pregnancy or an abortion in the past or, or you know, may have certain emotional instabilities and so on, who, because it's someone who does not have that, you know, fundamental self-respect to say, no, 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 I don't want to give up sex. I want you to get to know me, uh, who I am and, and what I'm about. And, and I want to have that sort of value conversation or that value perspective with you. So it's really, modernity is brutal, brutal, brutal on women. It's tough on men. And, and, you know, we hear about the family courts and I'm sympathetic to all of that. But we also do have to recognize how incredibly brutal things like the welfare state and so on are on women. You know, I, I had a tweet back in the days when I could tweet. I had a tweet which was, uh, before the welfare state, was there any such thing as a friend zone? Hmm. Uh, that's a really, I mean, it's a very deep insight and observation. I won't sort of unpack it all here other than to say uh, prior to the welfare state, women couldn't just go date and keep guys in reserve and all that because they kind of had to, in the youthful flair of their beauty and sex appeal, they had to lock down a man for a long-term commitment. And, you know, there's almost nothing more humiliating than being stuck in the friend zone by a woman who's already married. <laughs> that's really sad. That's, I, I mean, that's beyond pitiful, right? And so women prior to the welfare state, had to have a man to provide for them and had to provide qualities of sexual access or character, hopefully the latter. But once you got the welfare state, then women were provided for. They didn't need to get that level of commitment because they could get resources out of the man through the power of the state rather than the qualities of their characters or, I don't know, the opening of their legs, so to speak. But it's really tough for women. It's really, really unbearable for women right now because women do want to be loved. They do want to have commitment. They do want to have a robust sex life as part of that commitment of, of marriage or at least long-term boyfriend-girlfriend status. But in order to gain a man's attention, they're competing with women who will offer up sex with very little resistance. And I remember, you know, this was not the case when I was dating, when I was uh, young. But uh, yeah, it was a friend of mine some years ago who's much younger than me was saying, oh yeah, like if you haven't had sex by the third date, like forget it, right? And I'm like, Third date? Third date? I mean, good heavens, that's remarkable. And it's really, really, really tough for women. And of course, the, the media is all playing the, you know, sexually empowered sluttiness uh, is, is the way to go, that women can be just like men. And, you know, it's just doesn't seem to be the case, doesn't, doesn't really play out that, that way. All that happens is that, you know, where are the unhappy, bitter, angry feminist stereotypes coming from? Well, uh, they're, they're coming from men who use women for sex. And then when that's the case, then a woman says, well, you know, men are just pigs and they don't care about qualities of character. And, you know, and it's really bad, you know, like I, I really implore men, I implore men, you know, it's, I mean, go complain about feminism all you want. But if you are uh, sleeping around, if you're a player, if you're running game and, and trying like if you're just sleeping around with women just, if you're just using women for sex then you're more responsible for feminism than gloria steinem and ms magazine put together right i mean you are creating feminists by using women for sexuality uh, it is uh, dehumanizing it's brutal it's horrible and um i'm i'm the father of a of a girl and uh, don't don't do it find a woman of quality commit to her, raise a family, 
don't fall into this stupid blind trap that's been set by cultural indoctrination and programming, largely from the left. Just don't do it. If you can't find value in a woman outside of her sexuality, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll, you'll have a much better sex life with a woman of quality than with a woman of access. All right. Thank you very much for your question. Let's do uh, maybe uh, one more. All right. So uh, we have a question. This uh, listener is unsure about uh, jumping in to have a chat. So if you maybe have some general thoughts uh, or if you want some more information, you know, General Thoughts is the name of my chief commander in the philosophy army. Anyway, sorry. is that right? Yeah. yeah. Did, did he did he get promoted over General Blah Blah Blah? <laughs> Major General Online. That that's going back a ways. Oh, sure is. All right. So his question is: uh, Should I defoo early, or take a bit of crap, and use the family resources to help move me out of the third world and get edu- get an education, not college, and then defoo? Okay, um, help me to uh, help me to understand this. This one, um, I, he doesn't want to talk, or she doesn't want to talk. Is that right? He's a bit, uh, bit shy. No, that's fine. It's fine if he doesn't. Can you just maybe throw the question into our, our chatty chatville? Absolutely, absolutely. Can do that. So the context is he's in the third world. He apparently is unhappy with his family, and. Um, He's wondering if, you know, how would he make the decision around whether he should stick it out and uh, try to, you know, get some resources together or if he should just split. First of all, I have to get a song out of my head. Okay. One world is enough for all of us. All right. Uh, So do you take resources from an abusive family to get your life started? If the family is, so, you know, for those who don't know DFU, so FU is an acronym, it's not mine, it stands for family of origin. And the reason that the word DFU is there is like the word divorce, right? So if you say, well, I'm going to leave my family, nobody knows if you are talking about your family of origin or if you're married, your current family or whatever it is, right? Or your extended family. So that's what DFU is. Now, DFU, of course, is a, I suppose, is a controversial thing because people can't think consistently, but um, uh Defu is if you decide to take a break, whether temporary or permanent, from your family of origin, my message has always been, yeah, you don't have to be in abusive relationships. You, you simply don't have to be in abusive relationships, of course. right? We, we recognize that if your girlfriend is abusive, you can break up with her. If your friend uh, is abusive, you don't have to stay in that friendship. Uh, if, and if your parents are abusive, you don't have to stay. Once you're an adult, right, you don't have to stay in that relationship, or I suppose younger. I mean, I don't talk to people um, uh, under 18, but, you know, you can go and get student welfare or whatever it is, find some way to to support yourself outside of that. But um, so you, you don't now. My suggestion has always been the same, which is, you know, if you've got issues with your parents, sit down and, and re- assuming it's safe, you're not violent or something, right? You know, your dad's not Tony Soprano or something, in which case, I guess, just give him some pasta and wait for nature to take its course. But if you do have abusive parents or really difficult, unpleasant, negative relationships, sit down with your parents and, and try and talk about things, try and work things out. And, um, you know, try, I mean, I certainly tried it repeatedly. 
uh, and and also engage with a therapist who's got some experience with these kinds of things, not just because it's a difficult thing to do emotionally to separate for an abusive family of origin, but also because there's a huge amount of social prejudice against that particular behavior um, for reasons I can get into another time. I think we all recognize, I think it was Beverly Slopin who wrote a book about this uh, and uh, was one of the books who was like, you know, just, you know, don't, it's like, if you're in an abusive relationship with a girlfriend, at least you chose that person, which is not much comfort if you're in that mess, but you don't choose your parents, right? So you should have even higher standards for unchosen relationships than you do for chosen relationships. But if you're in a, an abusive relationship with, let's say you're a woman, you're in an abusive relationship with some guy, and you say, oh, yeah, no, I, I dated this guy five times, and then, you know, he hit me on the sixth date, and I'm like, I never had anything to do with him again. People are like, hey, wise decision, good job, well done. Or even if it's like, oh, he just put me down, he called me fat when I wasn't, uh, uh, he, he, you know, made me feel like crap, and, you know, it's like, okay, well, why would you want to stay in that kind of situation? Um, but if it's, you know, mommy and daddy, right, suddenly um, you just, you're not supposed to have any free will, you're not supposed to have any choice in, in the matter, and so on. And uh, unfortunately, I think it speaks to just how negative a lot of uh, parenting is. And um, so that that's sort of the defu thing in a nutshell. Yeah, you don't have to spend time. I really suggest if it's safe, try and work it out with your parents. Maybe you can have a breakthrough. Therapy is really, really important uh, if you're going to go through this process. But yeah, you don't have to stay in abusive relationships. So with regards to taking resources from your family, uh, if they are abusive, and like if you do want to uh, leave it, um, I don't think that it's a moral question. I don't think that it's a moral question. Um, when you are in an abusive relationship with someone, let's say that your parents hit you or repeatedly as a child, so you're kind of in a state of nature. And let me sort of give you a, a more extreme example just by way of illustration. So if you're, uh, uh, if you're kidnapped and you're locked in the back of a van and the way that you get out is you, you know, kick open the door, you break the window and, and you wait until they're slowing down and then you jump out and so on, right? Well, normally you wouldn't like, you shouldn't go down the, the street kicking in the windows and breaking the doors of random cars, right? That would, be, that would be destruction of property. It would be immoral, right? But when you're in a situation where morality is kind of already out the window, in other words, you've been kidnapped or something, okay, well, then that's sort of a different matter. And I don't think there's anyone who would say, okay, well, you know, you were being kidnapped, but technically uh, it is a violation of property rights to break someone else's van door and window, whatever it is, right? We would say, okay, well, good for you. Like, I'm glad that you fought your way out. It's like an essay that I wrote many, many years ago, um, The Ethics of Emergencies. I remember that was an Ayn Rand one. But anyway, there was a um, somebody, I probably long gone from the conversation by now, who wrote uh, this is a flagpole scenario, right? So, ah, oh, property rights. But if you're hanging from a flagpole outside the window of an apartment and you kick in that window and climb your way into that apartment because you're just hanging there and your grip is slipping and you don't want to fall and die to your death. And well, then clearly violations of property rights are less bad than somebody dying and therefore welfare state. You know, I was, I'm sort of compressing the argument a little bit, but you hear this all the time, right? Should a man starve to death or is it better for him to steal a loaf of bread and survive? 
well, steal a loaf of bread and survive, therefore welfare state, right? Whatever it is, right? And the answer to the flagpole scenario is, look, I mean, if I, I just, you know, for, for those who want to know, if, if you're ever hanging from a flagpole and you're outside my apartment, I have an apartment, let's say, outside my apartment, I, I don't want you to fall to your death. You're, you're welcome to kick in my window. I'm sure you'll be happy to pay for it to be repaired or whatever. And if you can't afford that, you know, I'm, I'm still happy that you came into my house rather than fall, fall to your death, right? So I'm not going to press charges against you for kicking in the window. And even if I did, it would be really hard to imagine that the police or the district attorney would be, you know, hey, this guy was, he was pushed off a building. He was hanging from a flagpole. He kicked in a window to save himself. Come on. You know, that's not a reasonable thing to say, yeah, he should have died because he fell off or was pushed off a, uh, uh, a rooftop, grabbed a flagpole and, and kicked in a window. So these aren't issues where people are going to end up either pressing charges or being charged or anything like that. And of course, you'd be happy to pay for, it may take you a while if you're really poor, but you'd be happy to pay for the window to be repaired because otherwise you wouldn't be alive at all. So these aren't really uh, issues at all. So with regards to when you're in a state of nature now, when people have initiated the use of force against you, um, let's say that you've been hit by your parents or could be worse, right? It could be a sexual assault, sexual abuse, a molestation, whatever it is, right? But let's just say it's hitting, right? So let's say that you've been hit a lot by your parents. And, you know, uh, the question of spanking is complicated, but um, if you're going, if you're in the third world, uh, you know, parenting tends to be kind of harsh in that neck of the woods. So I'm going to go on a limb here and say that, you know, probably it was more than just a, a swat on the butt, so to speak, uh, once every week or two, that it may have been sexual aggression, it may have been hitting you with implements, it may have been beatings, uh, it may have been you know, whatever, it could be any number of horrible things. So if you've been in that situation, I assume you're close to college age, right? So if you're in that situation, then you're an adult. And so you've had, I would assume, you know, close to two decades of being hit, or maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 15 years, whatever it is. So you've got a lot of history of uh, being aggressed against. Now, to me, to a large degree, that puts you in a state of nature with regards to the relationship. And I'm not saying, of course, that you then get to hit them back, right? Because it's no longer self-defense. You know, if some guy uh, comes at you and is going to hit you and you hit him, to stop him from doing that, that's one thing. But if you, you know, he misses... Uh, and then he's walking home and you jump him later, that's, a, you know, you're no longer an imminent self, right? So I'm not saying that it gives you the right to hit your parents back. But for me, uh, it is, um, if, if they've taken a lot of your childhood happiness and they want to pay for your education, I don't have any particular issue with that at all. Now, you could say, oh, yeah, well, what if I plan on defooing them afterwards and I don't tell them this, that, and the other? You don't know. Like, you don't know what's going to happen if you sit down and talk with your parents. You don't know if you can get them into family therapy or you get yourself into personal therapy. There may be ways. You don't know for sure what's going to happen uh, down the road. But um, I do think that uh, it's, it's fine to take resources from people who've, who've harmed you. I mean, we do that all the time. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about a lawsuit, but if, you know, if there is a lawsuit, you know, somebody has done something that's sort of physically harmed you, you can sue them and get their money, right? And if they've, you know, beaten you or, or done terrible things to you growing up, um, to me, I, it's not really something where I'd sit there and say, well, the ethics of the situation or this, that, and the other. To me, that's kind of like a state of nature. 
with people who've done you significant harm, particularly when you didn't choose to be there. Um, let's take another sort of extreme example just to illustrate the point. If you are uh, a slave and you plan on running away, let's see, you're back in some antebellum situation, or I guess one of the 15 million plus slaves that currently exist in America and Qatar and other, uh, sorry, in, in um, I guess some in America too, uh, but uh, the sex slaves. But uh, yeah, there are in India, there are millions and Qatar and, and even Israel in some places, right? So if you are in a situation where you are enslaved, um, can you grab a pile of cash to help you with your getaway? Uh, I think we all kind of get that that's not really a moral situation. You can't steal from the slave owner. You can't, right? So I would say that it's probably something that you would look for practical consequences rather than morality. Because if you've been really harmed by parents, uh, I would view your moral relationship to be closer to a state of nature um, than something where the relationship is chosen and voluntary. Like, you know, it, it, so if you choose to have a job and you don't like the job, like the, the, I think I had it for one night, the job as a uh, a dishwasher in a restaurant. Just God, God help people who do that. And for me, it was hell. So if you, I, I stayed there one night and I was like, no, there's not, I'm like, uh, I'll do something else. And I ended up being a waiter. It was much better for my personality. But if you choose a job and then you decide to quit a job, can you grab money on the way out? Well, no, because you chose to be there. You chose, you're choosing to leave, and that doesn't give you the right to other people's resources or income. But, you know, again, if, if you're a slave and you're making a getaway, can you grab some of the slave owner's money, so to speak? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't have any problem with that. I mean, guy's a slave owner. He's an evil guy, right? And if your parents have abused you terribly, then... Um, I again, I don't. I, I would view it more as a practical question of consequences, and also to some degree, based upon your moral sensitivity, you know what you can live with. And also, um, sometimes it can be helpful if you're getting out of a relationship to not give people leverage over you by ah, but you took all of this money, you owe us whatever, you took these resources, we paid for your school, and it might give them some excuse to continue to have leverage or power over you. So again, these are also practical considerations, but um, I don't view the victims of abuse to be morally bound in the same way, especially unchosen relationships, of course, to be morally bound in the same way that um, chosen voluntary relationships are. So anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening tonight. A great pleasure to dip in and chat with Yowl. Uh, please go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out with the show. Very, 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 very much appreciated in these Oh, so fundamentally challenging times. I really hey, do appreciate um, it. Freedomain.com. It's, it's uh, my question. If you ever want to ask a question, we can talk a little. If not, say goodbye. I, yeah, I no, please uh, come by next time. Um, I uh, unfortunately right. didn't eat enough before this, and I got a, got a bit of a brain fart going on towards the end here. So I'm, uh, if you well, want to call back in, we can, we can talk about it next show. Uh, I don't want to dismiss your question at all, but um, I'm sorry that... Uh, we didn't get to it. I thought it was a, a silent uh, silent partner question. So, yeah, freedomain.com well, forward slash you know, donate. But then again, it's, I'm sorry? Uh, it was, but then again, it's, um, 
it's kind of an opportunity to, to talk to you too, which is nice. No, and I appreciate that. And I, I do that. Talk, talk to James and we'll, we'll set it up even sure, if it's sure, outside sure. the regular and, call-in uh, show. Yeah, have a good meal and everything. All right. Well, thanks everyone. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Lots of love from up here in Canada or I guess down here in Canada if you're in Alaska or Nunavut. But uh, yeah, have yourselves a great week, everyone. Um, stay strong, uh, stay committed, uh, stay happy, stay productive and um, stay with me freedomain.com. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Take care. Thanks a lot.